Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And good afternoon. Good afternoon. I am Dr. James Smith Jr. And welcome back to another installment of the Dr. James Show. I've been given a lot of thought lately to how much things have changed over the past 17, 18 months. Changed personally, changed professionally. And in one of my, I guess, my gifts is actually doing the show. Prior to the pandemic, every resource that I provided was done in person. But now as a result of the, the pandemic, I now do a weekly show that has really, really, ah, inspired me to be more creative, to grow my network. And I'm thrilled that people like you tune in every week for the show. And of course, we have another blockbuster show today. I can't wait to get started. But before we do, let's tune into another segment of Alumni Love. Hey everybody, it's Dr. James, and welcome back to another edition of Alumni Love. It's where we love up on our alum and give them an opportunity to talk about what's new, what's hot in their life. And today we have alum C.J. Witherspoon, who was with us during the first season of the Dr. James. So C.J., what's up, my brother? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. How are you? Man, I am fantastic. I woke up again, so it's a great day. Listen, talk to us. What's new? What's hot? What's been going on in your life since you appeared on the Dr. James Show? It's funny you ask that because I feel like everybody should have learned something new during the pandemic. And I've always been known like I'm video production and I still do that. But one thing that's really important to me is financial literacy and teaching people how to better themselves and better their families for the long haul. So with that, I got my financial consulting license yes. and with Core Financial Agency. We have a very unique approach to servicing our clients, you know, and we help people find money where they're losing it unknowingly and unnecessarily, starting with these five areas, which are their taxes, their mortgages, their qualified plans, their college funding, and also major purchases. You say you go on vacation and you spend thousands of dollars, we help you figure out ways to spend it more wisely, right? And we take this approach because like, we believe there's more to be gained in finding unnecessary losses than picking winning investments. This is just something that like I'm passionate about and I'm seeing the results and I love seeing people smile when they're like, oh, I didn't realize this is what I was doing. This, this is very timely. We need it. However, CJ, if people still want you to do video production, how can they reach you? So for video production, you can reach me at cj at three, like the number three, spoons.com. And for financial consulting, you can reach me at cj at corefinancialpartners.com. Something tells me you don't get any rest. Any rest. <laughs> <laughs> hey, as long as I'm helping people, man, I'm good. That's a good one, brother. Listen, stay in touch. We love our alumni. Be well.
Thank you. You as well. All right. That was CJ Witherspoon. You ever prepare a meal, an event where you knew it was going to be spectacular, but you couldn't wait to share it? Well, that's how I feel right now. Our, our guest for today, Lenora Billings Harris, um, is amazing. She's an author, she's a coach, she's a diversity, equity, inclusion expert. She is a Cavett Award winner. She is a CPAE, a Hall of Famer with the National Speakers Association. Of course, she's a certified speaking professional, CSP. We have a Hall of Famer on the show. Welcome to the Dr. James Show, Lenore Billings Harris. Yay! <laughs> Thank you, you so much, Dr. James. I'm so excited to be with you. It is, it is an honor. It is great. I'm looking forward to you sharing your expertise with our audience members, whether they're listening or watching, but there's a lot going on. And in your, in your, your, your sizzle reel, you talked about this is an exciting time to do the work that you're doing. Why so? Well, you know, as, as people would have heard, I've been doing this work over 30 years. And the reason it's exciting now is came about because of an unfortunate circumstance and that's the, the murder of George Floyd. But the, the positive connection and the legacy he leaves is that corporations and nonprofits, I mean, all types of organizations realize that they were tiptoeing around diversity, equity and inclusion. And so many of them recognized that if they wanted to be relevant and authentic, they had to get serious about this work. And although I've never advertised that I consult because I'm very picky about who, what companies I'm gonna work with, sure. I only work with companies that I'm convinced they're serious about doing the hard work. So many of my past clients, um, presentation clients and workshop clients, not just consulting clients, reached out to me to say, we need your help. And they were willing to get uncomfortable so that they could disrupt what they were doing in the past and really lay out, hopefully, a positive future. So for those of us who do this work, I believe it's finally a time where we can make a significant difference. What was last year like for you, the month of May and June, where people were reaching out. I've heard uh, some black people say they don't wanna do the education. They want people to work, do the leg work, do the research for themselves. So it felt kind of bittersweet. You having been in the industry for a number of years, how did you go about embracing all the uh, outreach, but also encouraging people mm -hmm. to do some work on their own as well? Well, my approach has been, and what my clients what my clients say to me when I ask them, why did you choose me? There's lots of people that do this work. Um, my clients know that I'm not about blame and shame. That moreover, what I hear is I somehow have the ability to talk about difficult, sensitive things in a way that people can hear it. Now that doesn't mean I soften it, but I give examples 
that people can relate to, that they can understand regardless of what their own diversity package is. Because as you know, we're all diverse. It's not just those quote unquote protected groups. And so for me, when I, my number one rule is before I say yes to a consulting client uh, in particular, I want to talk to the CEO one-on-one behind closed doors, essentially. So, you know, private Zoom calls in these days to find out what their real motivation is. And How do those conversations typically go? How do you get them to that place of vulnerable trust, opening up and not just giving you the bottom line? Right. Well, first of all, again, they, they come to me because they already know my style. But when I meet with the CEO, especially if it's one I have not met before, I might have worked with the company, but I might not have met the CEO. If he or she, and in most cases, it's a he, uh, starts giving me the high level BS, quite honestly, mm-hmm. you know, well, we know it's going to make our numbers better, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm I like, okay, time out. I need to know what's in it for you. And here's the reason. I need to know what your expectations or at least your hopes are so that I can provide that for you. And I'm also gonna be honest with you, you don't hire consultants to tell you just the good news. So you need to be open to things that are not necessarily going to be good news because I can guarantee you some of the things that you think are going on within your organization because you and the C-suite are so fully on board those things are not necessarily happening because you have that that middle management group that has to answer their subordinates and also answer to top leadership and they're trying to figure this out and so they're dealing with a lot of things so if you're open to me telling you truth and you're willing to tell me your truth and and some of their truths relative to what they what they want to get out of it are hilarious i'll, I'll give you just one quick example sure, please it had nothing to do with we want to be more inclusive and and you know we really want our team members to love working here it wasn't that i had one ceo say you know i go out golfing with my buddies once a week there's four of us and they, this is way before even George Floyd, they sometimes bring up diversity and inclusion and they talk about what their company's doing and I got nothing. Wow. I need to be able to have some stories to share with them. So that helps me know what I need to sure. provide for him or her. In addition to, of course, getting a diversity council put together and that kind of thing. Do you think organizations feel more pressure today to do something, to do more than they were doing? And where is that pressure coming from? Society, yes. employees, what do you think? They, both, they, they do feel more pressure. And a, a couple of my consulting clients came to me right after everything that was happening in May to ask the question, you know, should we put something out publicly or not? Because, you know, many of the, of the, C-suite folks, especially the CEOs, are baby boomers or they're they're older Gen Xers. But baby boomers in particular got into the workforce when they were told, you don't talk about your personal life. You don't talk about politics. You don't talk about um, all of those things not related to work. 
And so they come from a generation where, oh, the corporation shouldn't be stepping out and talking about what they support or they don't support. So they were having cognitive dissidence. They, they were being pressured by employees and or communities to, to say what they stand for and very afraid, oh my goodness, if I say this, I'm gonna lose clients. And so what I would say to them is you have to make the final decision about whether you say something publicly. You definitely need to say something internally because silence says compliance. Yes. And so you have to say something and recognize that yes, you may lose some clients, some customers or clients, whatever they have, but you also will gain others because today's consumer who has money to spend is looking to spend their dollars with organizations that are in alignment with their values. So that's the impact of millennials and Gen Z. They want to be associated with something that is bigger than themselves. So it's been, been tough and a lot of wordsmithing for some of the companies to figure out what it is they're going to say. Um, those organizations I've worked with have not regretted saying something. Now, not all of them said something publicly, um, but they all said something internally. And their quote unquote diverse employees have said, wow, I can't believe they're doing this. I feel so recognized now. In, in, in doing my research on you, which was ironic because I've known you for a number of years and whether you knew it or not, when I started in the speaking business and joined the National Speakers Association, you were my mentor. You just didn't know it. I watched you. <laughs> I followed you. I studied you. You didn't know it. But in, in doing my research, I came across a clip where you talk about privilege, but it wasn't white privilege. It was height privilege. Let's take a look at the clip. And I would love for you to continue to unpack that privilege. 0.8% of the adult male population is six feet tall. Only 14%. Most people will guess 30, 40%. However, among US CEOs, 60% of the CEOs are six feet tall or taller. Now, is that because they're smarter? Now, I know the guys in the room that are six feet tall, you want to say, yes, of course. <laughs> it's not because they're smarter, it's because they have a privilege that they may not be aware of. They happen to be taller. So when women wear three... So when women wear three-inch heels, please elaborate yeah. <laughs> on height privilege. <laughs> right, kind of leave you hanging on that one. Right, so what I'm talking about there is all of us have various types of privileges. And the reason we don't know it is because we were unaware, we didn't need to think about it. And so all of us want to think that the reason we got to where we are in our life, meaning whatever uh, jobs we have, whatever titles we have, however much money we've made, we'd like to believe it's because we were the best at doing it. Now, I'm not suggesting that you're not good at doing it. So if you're six feet tall or taller, I'm not suggesting you're not qualified. However, what you may not realize is that you got noticed literally and figuratively before other people simply because of your height. Because way back during caveman times, we needed tall tribal leaders 
could see danger from a distance. And that value, that belief, that need kept being reinterpreted over the years. So now bring it to 2021 and being a guy is a privilege in the workplace and now be, and also being tall, it means that you got in the door. Now, once you get in the door, you've got to be good, right? But you got in the door and there are women and people, men and women of shorter stature that automatically get judged because of the biases that we have. We either literally or figuratively overlook them, or let's imagine this, you're a short man, shorter man, and you also don't have a really firm handshake. If you can remember back when we used to <laughs> shake hands yeah. and let's say you don't have that real strong handshake, maybe you hurt your hand or something. You automatically have been judged within the first 10 seconds of meeting the interviewer or whoever it is you're, you're uh, meeting with. They're already assuming you're not a good leader and on and on and on. You don't know that's happening to you. And if it's a tall guy making these judgments, oftentimes he doesn't realize he's conscious and you know how, how impactful those quick decisions are because then we want to reconfirm what our bias is about that person. So for women in the workplace, so often people would say, oh yeah, she's wearing those stilettos because she you know, just wants to show off or especially if it has a red, a red um, sole because that tells you how much they pay, she paid for it. It could be, and in many cases it is, women wear those very high heels at work to give them a bit more power. Now, I didn't realize this for many years because I'm five nine. And in the early years of my career, back when I was in corporate, I wore three inches at least, not five inches, but I, you know, at least three inch heels. Sure, it was sure. just what I did. I didn't realize that that was giving me power because being tall already, I could look directly in the eyeballs of the men that I interacted with. I didn't have to look up. That gave me power. Powerful, powerful. And now we're gonna to go to the chat room. There's a question that said, what should a consultant understand and be aware of before going into a company to work on a diversity and inclusion initiative. So again, what should the consultant, the business owner, the entrepreneur, what should he or she understand and be aware of before going into the company to do some work, some DE&I work? Mm -hmm. So before you sign a contract, what you want to do is research on the company go to their website, how many clicks does it take to get to something that talks about diversity? The general rule is if it takes more than three clicks, the company's not really that serious. Um, or if they have anything, and sometimes all they have is an EEO disclaimer, that's not a diversity statement. That's you know just basic regulations. So do some research. Don't just go to you know, the pictures and all of that kind of thing, but find an annual report see what they're talking about in their annual reports, see what their ratings are relative to their management. You can find out these kinds of things. So that helps you determine whether you wanna work with them in the first place. Then if once you are on board, my process is that I'm going to have either listening sessions or focus groups. And oftentimes I'll do both. Now for the viewers and listeners, listening sessions is where you would get 
um, people who are diverse in the same way together. So it started out with Black people, African-Americans specifically, getting them together in small groups. Um, I facilitate the listening and I have one or two executives listening. They open the session, but then they pretty much don't say anything else. They really are listening mm -hmm. and people are telling their stories. What is it like to be in your skin literally, literally and figuratively right now um, to enlighten that that um, leader who has not had to think about this in the past. So I'll do some of those listening sessions. Focus groups are where I'm really gonna ask some pointed questions about what it's like to work in that organization. So then I can take that back to whoever it is I'm working with, whether it's the, a diversity council, if they already have one put together, or a small group of people where I will then help them determine what type of diversity or DEI council they should have, who should be on it, and then move the work forward. So the point is get information externally at first, and then if you decide to work with them, get real information, not just the numbers, that's the easy part, but get the stories of people's experience as an employee, and if they are consumer focused, then also what it's like for them to be a diverse person, whatever that is, working with the public. What do they have to put up with that you might not be aware of? That's good. When they're looking to select and form that council, what advice do you give them for council membership? Who should mm -hmm. be on it? Who shouldn't be on it? Should it be a rolling position where you're on for two years, then you roll off and someone else? What advice do you give organizations with formulating and forming their council? Yes, and that this is where I started with many, many of my clients in addition to doing the, the focus sessions. Um, so what I encourage them, the council should have decision makers on it. People who are accustomed to dealing with the budget and that kind of thing, because if they're serious about this work, they're going to have to come up with finances to support the initiatives, the actions that the council comes up with. So they should be decision makers, leaders. At, they don't have to just be the C-suite, but they need to be people that are, are responsible for, uh, for a budget, in my opinion. Um, and make it as diverse as possible. Um, and some companies want to have no executives on it and just have employees. That's the second or the third step because you need lots of people involved to get the initiatives done. But for that council, their job is to develop the DEI strategy. And it should be for at least three years, you know, five, these days, who knows what we're going to be doing in five years. So they have to develop that strategy, which is another reason it needs to be leaders because leaders should have strategy experience. Um, and there's two things that would happen with this council. It's number one, it shouldn't be too big. I'm working with one client that has 25 people on the council. It's, wow. it's, it's wow. not manageable. And they're, at, you know, they, they put the council together before I came on board with them. Um, but you want to make it small enough so that it can be nimble and then really get into um, all the various pieces of the organization they need to look at to move a DEI strategy forward. Additionally, these are the people that can help everyone else know that DEI is the responsibility of everybody, not just HR and not just the DEI um, officer. Now, 
at the same time you say everybody, you know, if, you, if everybody's responsible, nobody does it. So the other aspect of the, uh, the council is to come up with KPIs, not just, again, not just about numbers, but also about assessments as it relates to behaviors, how leaders are behaving to create that more inclusive environment. So that's one piece, that's the work. But the other part of the work for everyone on that council is their own individual internal work. So back to the question you asked earlier about how you know some folks are saying, look, they need to go out and do their work. The problem is, is they don't, they don't know what they don't know. So that's where we can be helpful to direct them on resources to use. If you have, if you're um, a coach also, you can do it that way. And, and I position my clients, it's like, now I, I will give you a list of resources based on what I know about your company and, and you know where you are right now. Usually I start out with an assessment, individual assessments with them, but then give them resources. And I'm saying, and I'll say to them, now, as you listen to this podcast or as you watch this YouTube video, or as you uh, listen to this audio book, don't stop listening when you hear something that you don't mm. like but rather keep listening and ask yourself this question, why does it make you uncomfortable? Because change does not happen until we get uncomfortable with the status quo. Great. If you're Great. willing Great. to lean in, then you'll learn and you'll have a better appreciation of how to create the culture that you want within your organization. That's awesome. I'm gonna show another clip right now where you talked about the key is connectivity, building connections. Let's take a little look at the clip and then we'll ask you to elaborate more on that. What all of us are trying to do is to connect with other people. And sometimes though, our biases get in the way and we don't even realize that it's happening. Well, at the University of Michigan's medical school, in their research, they discovered that every time we feel isolated or separated or excluded, our brain equates it to physical pain. Physical pain. Mm, mm, please say more. No, say more. I, I, I love talking about that one. The University of Michigan is my alma mater. So I was so mm. thrilled when I happened to come across this research that it happened to come from their um, medical school. And the bottom line is, whatever our organization is, whether it's for-profit or not, the human beings that are working there want to be included. They want to feel that they belong. Everybody wants that. The challenge is because of our biases, many of which we're unaware of. So um, we generally say unconscious bias. It's in our conscious, but, right. it's, but we're just not aware of it. There are so many biases that we have that we oftentimes say or do things that exclude or move people away unintentionally. Let me give you an example of something that I recently learned. Now, luckily I didn't say this, but I learned it from one of my LGBTQIA plus colleagues. One of the things she said is do, this is what you don't want to say to a person within that community who comes out to you. So whether they're coming out to you as transgender or bi or gay or whatever it is, 
the tendency often for that quote unquote straight person is to say, oh, you know, it just doesn't matter to me. I just like you the way, you know, for who you are. Do not say it does not matter because when you say that, you're saying that part of who you are to the person you're talking to is irrelevant. That's a huge part of who they are. So you don't wanna say it doesn't matter. Or oftentimes I, I would get this back in my corporate life. People would say, oh, Lenore, I just didn't even notice you were black. And I'm like, really? Because the way I internalize that is, am I acting so white? Today, we would call that covering. Am I acting so white that you don't even notice that I'm black? And then here's the point. The person saying it is well-intentioned, but intention is not good enough. It's impact. So that's why we all have to do our own individual work so that we can begin to uncover some of the biases we didn't realize we had and it's not about being politically correct. It's about being respectful to the person that you're interacting with or the people you're interacting with. So that when you make a bit of a shift, you don't have to be perfect, but when people start noticing you're making a bit of a shift, they notice that. And that says, I'm included. That says, you see me for who I am authentically, not just whatever role I'm playing. It's ironic that you said politically correct PC. I always say that PC stands for poor communication. So your, <laughs> your political correctness is leading to poor communication. Can you give us a sample of how your corporate experiences primed you for the work you do today? Was there an experience of, or two or three or four that said, I, got, I have work to do outside of this, where you said, going forward, I'm putting on my DEI cape. And I have some education to do, education so, of others to do. So there was, when I first started my business, I was not focused on DE&I. Of course, that way back then, we only called it diversity. and <laughs> didn't have all these other words connected to it. Um, but my background was HR and uh, training and development, as they called it then, learning and development. And um, because of my husband's career, we moved around following his career because I figured I work in the corporate world. I can always find a corporate position. He, he was in um, uni the university environment. And so we followed his career. And by the time I moved to Arizona, uh, which was in 85, I think, as I was looking for a corporate position, the corporation I was with really was trying to hold on to me. They really didn't want me to quit, but they didn't have something there that was comparable to headquarters in Philadelphia, actually, is where I had been before that. And um, so I had also been thinking about starting my own business. And I had some colleagues, because I used to work at General Motors, who had started their own consultancy. So I reached out to them. But more specifically, what I did not know until several years later when I did get focused on this work is that my work, especially at General Motors, laid the foundation for me for diversity. Because when I worked for them, I flew around North America delivering week-long workshops with, a, with another GM colleague um, to dealership sales service and parts managers. This was in the mid and late 70s. So imagine, I didn't realize it at the time, I show up and I'm black, female, and young talking to the sales service parts managers and dealer principals on how to run their business. Now, I wasn't teaching them how to sell a car, but how to run it from a leadership perspective. And 
I was such an enigma to them, I think, um, that I, I had a fabulous experience, uh, contrary to what a lot of people would sure. think, but that laid the foundation. Then when I decided I wanted to start my business, I thought, okay, a good place to go, a, an industry I really know quite well is automotive. And so I was delivering workshops, kind of doing the same thing as I was doing before, except now uh, through my own business. My colleagues, my speaker, trainer, consulting colleagues were telling me by now, let's fast forward, it's to late 80s. Um, mid to late 80s, they were telling me, oh, you should do diversity work. Because Jim, you know this, the, the, the shift to where companies started paying attention to this was when Workforce, Workforce 2000 came out, and that came out in 1988. Yes. And it, it identified that by 2000, for the first time, the majority of people coming into the workplace would be other than white males. Yes. So corporations were starting to think about this. Oh, we need to think about who we're hiring and what our um, recruiting practices are and that kind of thing. So my colleagues were telling me, you should do diversity work. And I said, why? They said, well, you're black and female. And I thought, I don't think that's a good enough reason. However, I did start watching what other people were doing. Now, I, I was still delivering all kinds of leadership development um, programs, a lot of HR related things, how to hire and fire and coach and all of that kind of thing. And I dabbled a little bit in diversity, but mostly what I saw other people doing was blame and shame. Mm. And I thought, I, that's not, to me, that is not a positive way to get people to change behavior. And so I moved away from it. However, my speaker and consultant colleagues who had been in business far longer than me said to me, and one in particular, Tom Winninger, who you know, who recently passed, he said, you got to pick a lane. You need to be an expert either in a topic or an industry. And so I thought, I love automotive, but I don't want to specialize just in automotive. Sure. So I guess I need to pick a topic. And I started paying attention to all kinds of things. And you know, when the student's ready, the teacher shows up. And mm -hmm. I started going to South Africa in 1991, right after Mandela was freed from prison. And every time I went, I'd be there for three weeks at a time, usually twice a year. Every time I went, miracles constantly happened. Mm. That helped me know who I was as a person. And also what was happening within, in South Africa, both before his election to being president and after. And one of those experiences, which is too long to go into right now, um, really changed my focus on what diversity, what a diversity speaker, trainer, consultant could do. So the bottom line was, what I realized was diversity now, diversity, equity, and inclusion is not just about the numbers although the numbers are important. Inclusion is not just about the words you use, although words are powerful. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is being able to show up to be authentically who you are and at the same time, create a safe space for other people to be authentically who they are. That's really building that community or that culture of inclusion so that people can be 100%, 110% of who they are to deliver to the company or to the community, et cetera. So that, that really happened for me 
in 94. So I was doing a little diversity work and then really got serious about it in 94 and to present day to find my voice, my way of doing this work in a way that organizations could recognize that everybody can contribute and to constantly be a, a lifetime learner. Because even though I've been doing this a very long time, I still discover new things. I still um, stumble upon my own biases sure. and how to, how to, you can't get rid of them, but you can move them aside. Absolutely. Well, the finding your voice, the authenticity and the bias, I'm gonna come back to that. There is a question in the chat room that says, what advice do you have for an employee who feels that DE&I within the company is poor, which is important, but likes the company and products and services and other aspects of the company. The employee doesn't want to leave, he or she just wants change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that internally, <clears throat> in some circumstances, depending on how safe they are, it's, it's risky to bring up of topics that make other people uncomfortable. But what I would um, what I would advise, and and I get that question or a question similar to it quite, quite frequently, is find some allies in the company, especially allies who are at a higher level than you are. So go out, reach out to that vice president or that director or somebody that you trust. Or, or that you want to develop a relationship with, maybe you don't know them just yet, uh, but maybe it's somebody who is similar to you in some way, either the same gender um, or um, uh, same um, ethnic background or something like that, and reach out to them and share with them what your thinking is. If the organization is not doing anything as it relates to, to diversity and inclusion, um, you know, a first step could be education. Uh, and it could be something as small as brown bag lunches, bring some people together and have a discussion sure. after you've read a what listened to a podcast or read a book or something like that. Um, but at the same time, if you're reaching out to the, when you reach out to that person who's a higher level than you, um, don't expect that you have to have all the answers on what the company should do, but rather think of it sort of as a one-on-one -on -one listening session to share with that person, here's what my experience is from, from who I am. And it maybe it's something that leaders are not aware of that many of us experience. My point is share with them something that they will see as useful because what most, what many employees do when they like the company, but they just don't see that the company's serious about DEI, is they say, I'm out of here I'm out. I'm because out. these days, best, best, I mean, uh, uh, best talent, top talent, they have choices. They don't Absolutely. have to stay at those companies. Speaking of choices, do you choose to go into the hot seat right now? Actually, you don't have a choice. You are now in the hot seat <laughs> with, with our program. We do a hot seat every time we, we, we do the show. In essence, I provide one word, no more than two. And we ask our guests to share the first word that comes to mind. This is a talk to think exercise, not a think to talk. So I'm going to rifle the words off. Here it comes. Bam. You'll answer. I'll go to the next one. And we'll see the story you tell based on your hot seat responses. Are you ready? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> first word, diversity. More than just black and white. Oops, I know that was more than one word, but. 
leadership? Mm. You're thinking not innate, not innate. Equity. Hard work. Cecily Tyson. Ah, oh, Shiro with integrity. <laughs> Inclusion. I'm okay, you're okay. The future of diversity. In the hands of leaders. Advocacy. Speak up even when it hurts. Race. Not real. Transparency. You're the best at being yourself. Togetherness. Love. You are off the hot seat. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't do that in just one <laughs> word. <but. laughs> Lenore, you started talking about um, authenticity and, and you know that's, that's my sweet spot. Uh, the question that I have about authenticity is why do speakers, many speakers or, or coaches or people who have the privilege of the platform, why do they struggle with bringing their authentic self to the stage? Mm. Because we spend so much time worrying about what other people think. And it doesn't go away. I mean, I've been doing the work for a long time and I've become much better at not worrying about that so much, but especially in the earlier years, as you're building your business, it's like, oh my goodness, I don't wanna say the wrong thing because I'm gonna lose customers or lose clients or not get them in the first place. But here's the thing, while you're busy trying to be somebody else, you're losing who you are, number one. And it takes a whole lot of energy to try to be something else. Now, and by the way, I'm not suggesting that your authentic self should be you know, rude and all of that kind of thing, unless that's your brand. I mean, you and I know some speakers, <laughs> but that's their brand. Yeah. Yes. But what I am saying is that what I learned, and when I first started doing this work, I, in diversity and inclusion in particular, initially, I would share some of the experiences I had had as a woman, as a younger person, or as a black person. And my audiences, or as people would speak up, would give me an excuse as to why that wasn't racism, sexism, ageism. And I thought, okay, they're, they're discounting me. They're discounting my experience and they're not ready to hear this. And so for many years, I stuck to the research in, in, you know, in this space and gave examples, but not necessarily my personal examples. What I have learned, and again, I learned this from excellent speakers who came far, came, came a long way before me, is that when you are successful in this business, whatever your level of success is, when you're really successful, when you're really in that sweet spot with your audience is when you're being real. And so for me, there are some stories that just not ready for the platform. 
that, you know, that are personal experiences, but there are many that are. So I just have to put them, put them in context. And what I found was the more I shared who I am, the more audiences could connect with mm. me. So here's the bottom line. When you start being more concerned about what you, what your, who your audience is and what you can give to them and stop worrying so much about me and oh my goodness, do, you know, is, is my makeup right? Do I have on right. the right dress? This would be for, for me as a female, <laughs> of course. Um, sure. Now those things are important, but what's most important is to recognize that they don't know what you're gonna say anyway. And so say it the way they can hear it from your authenticity, from your perspective. And most important, before you get on that platform, stop rehearsing. <laughs> let, me, let, me interject, let me interject yeah. right there. Before my presentation this year at Influence, I mean, I'm ready to go on. I had rehearsed three gajillion times. You pulled me to the side and said, stop rehearsing. I didn't stop. know you had a picture of that part. That's exactly <laughs> that, what I was that saying. Was that magical moment. Can you tell the folks what you shared with me um, that basically is right in line with what you just said? Stop. Exactly. Exactly. And I need that picture. I didn't realize someone was standing there <laughs> taking it. So I was in the room while you were doing some additional rehearsing on the stage, on the platform. And then you finally came down. And that's when I held your hands, took a breath so that you would take a breath. Mm. And I said, okay, stop rehearsing. You are enough. You got wow. this. You got this. You know what you're going to say. And however it comes out is going to be the right way, not the rehearsed way. So trust yourself. And for the audience to, to know that this year's National Speakers Association Influence Conference, which is held every year, this year was held in um, Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. You were the chair for the conference. Um, wanted folks to know that and you see you in the audience enjoying the, the presentation. You know, you were, you were watching and sitting next to you was last year's president of NSA, Anna Lyota, but you were watching your baby and the conference was a success. Lenore, if people want to reach you, to spend time, to talk to you, to consult with you, to be coached by you, to bring you into their organization, how can they reach you? You bet. The easiest thing to do is to uh, go to info at ubuntuglobal.com. Ubuntu, I know you're going to put it on the screen somewhere for people to know how to spell Ubuntu. And everyone always asks, what does Ubuntu mean? And one of, on one of my many trips to South Africa, I learned this Zulu proverb. And to me, it is a very broad definition of diversity and inclusion. It is, I am because we are we are because I am. So you can go to info at uh, ubuntuglobal.com. You can find me on LinkedIn by my name, Lenora Billings Harris, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I am on Instagram, but don't bother with that one. <laughs> I'm, I'm still learning Instagram, but I am on all the other ones. We have another question or two in the chat room. It says, in light of how much we are learning about DEI, how do you revise 
update your approach and response to this new evidence? Mm, I, I am constantly learning. When I go walking in the morning, I'm usually listening to an audiobook. Um, most often on some aspect of the topic of DEI. And so pay attention to the research, then ask yourself the question how does this relate to my audience or to my client? How can I frame this in a way that'll make it important to them? So doing this work, the, the learning does not stop. Just constantly. I mean, every time I think of writing an article, I'm thinking, okay, there's been, you know, several others already that have been written, but also say to yourself, as I do me, nobody's written it the way I would write it mm. from my perspective. So, so read, read books or listen to books, pay attention to the research that's out there. There's plenty of great research because there still are several leaders who don't understand the business case. Um, I don't spend a whole lot of time on business case anymore. I present it so that they know it, but then sure. quickly get to helping them understand how to disrupt their biases. So just keep learning and practice your stories. Get, your, get some friends together and practice those stories, the stories that would be connected to the research to make it real for your audience. Speaking of making it real, someone out there said, will this recording be available to get? Oh my gosh, I love this person. Clap, 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 clap. <laughs> Lenore, you talked about disrupting biases and, and microaggressions. Can you tell us a little bit about your stop technique for doing that? Can you give us a sure. little bit? Sure. Really quick. Now, normally I take at least two or three hours to, to okay. present this, but real quick, stop stands for, um, and this is when some someone has said or done something that didn't land well with you. So one of those exclusions instead of inclusions, it, we call them, as you said, microaggressions. So somebody says something that, that just doesn't work for you. And you, this is this is not for you to do immediately because usually you're too emotional, you're too angry. Mm. So you want to think it through, but here's how it goes. The S stands for state the behavior. So you want to be very clear and specific about what the behavior was, when it happened yesterday, you know, when we were in the room and you said extra, you know, whatever it is. So state the behavior and the behavior could be something they said or did or whatever. Um, then T stands for tell them how you feel or how you felt when it happened. It's really important you say how you felt, not what your opinion is, because opinion is a judgment. I felt embarrassed. I felt angry. I felt um, excluded, whatever the word is. Then third, O stands for options. Tell the person what you would prefer they do in the future. So wow, help them out nice, here. Help nice. them know what you want them to do instead of That's what they key. did before. Really it's good. very key. And the last, the P is positive results. What's in it for them? Because you're asking them to change their behavior. What's in it for them? And it could be I'm not going to be tense expecting you to say this word or, or we're going to have a better working relationship. It, it has to be very specific to you. When you do those four steps and, and you practice them ahead of time, you should be able to get through the whole thing in 45 seconds or less because it's not a dialogue. It's you get mm. through the whole thing. Once you get through the whole thing and people might interrupt you, if they do, then go back to whatever that step was, says, Thank you. I heard you. And this is important to me because a lot of times at step number two, people will say, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. Well, guess what? They're my feelings. This is how I feel. And I'm not blaming you for that feeling, but it is how I feel. And I don't want to feel that way. So I need your help. Mm 
And we, at the very end, shooting on, shooting on people, don't yes. shoot on anyone. Yes. And at the very end, once you go through those four steps, then you say, are you willing to work with me on this? Mm. Because that says you're owning it. I'm owning it. I know this is my issue, not yours. Are you willing to work with Now, if they say no, you got a bigger problem than what this can solve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Someone in the chat room, Edward Robinson said, I am because my path has been blessed to intersect with Honoris. A lot of love out there. A lot oh. of love. Speaking of love, you've done a lot of work with the National Speakers Association. I'm not sure if a lot of our listeners know about this organization. I'm a member you're a member, you are the first Black woman Hall of Famer, actually the first and only. Yes, the uh, Cavett is, is given for service to the, to the profession, to the industry, and also to the organization. And what was so special about receiving that uh, particular honor is that it comes it comes from the members. That is the members of National Speakers Association can nominate someone. And you know, then there's additional processes to narrow it down uh, beyond that. But it, it comes from the members themselves. So for, for me to be honored that my members felt that um, I lived up to the standards of Cavett Robert, who was our founder, um, just made me more compelled to do more of the same. So it was quite an honor. Speaking of honors, at this juncture of our show, every week, because I'm a keynote speaker and you are one too, we ask our guests to do a mini keynote. Uh, 30, se 30 seconds to one minute where you encourage, you exalt, you inspire, grab that mic and you do it oh so well. You've been doing it for some time. Give them some words, some thoughts, some ideas. Five, four, three, two, one. The next voice you will hear, mic check, mic check, will be that of Lenora Billings Harris. So picture this, you're about to go onto the platform. You're a little bit nervous. At least I hope you should be. Don't wanna get too comfortable. But remember this, they don't know what you're going to say. And everybody in that audience wants you to be successful. So yes, you might be a little bit afraid or a little bit nervous. Take that deep breath and know that you are enough as you deliver the message they need to hear. Wow. Mic drop, mic drop. Bam. Someone else in the chat room said, what a breath of fresh air. Thanks for a wonderful and insightful presentation. Lenora, what's, what's, what's next and how's your book doing? Wow, I'm so excited about this book and uh, we don't have a published date. I am one of six people writing a book about inclusion for leaders that is truly global. Now there's several books out there that call themselves, called, the books are called global, but this one is truly, truly global because of the six of us, we cover four continents. Mm. So the difficulty is for us to all write about, you know, the segments that we're writing. Um, 
and have that global perspective. But of course, we're, we have to have our own perspective. So a perspective of Singapore or Sweden um, or South Africa, the various people that are, that are part of this book. And what we are doing is now that the first draft is, is just about complete, we're reading each other's entries so that we can interject the perspective of that continent or that country that is being um, being represented. So I'm really excited about this because we're not, not talking about diversity strategy. We're right. really getting down to what is an inclusive leader? What are the behaviors of an inclusive leader? And it's not just gonna be what's an inclusive leader in Western culture in North America. It's what does an inclusive leader look like if you're in Asia? or if you're in an African country, so that it's really truly gonna be inclusive uh, of the whole world. And our readers, we hope, will certainly see that this book is different than anything else that's out there because you can't possibly, even if you've lived in other countries, if you're not from that country, you don't have the deep, deep cultural history that a person who was born there has. And that's what I'm seeing come together is as I write something from a US centric perspective, even if I you know, sprinkle in my global experience, then I might have my colleague from South Africa say now, and here's how we see Absolutely. that particular behavior here. Uh, here's how it will land. Here's how we need to reframe it and bringing that all to it. So it's a difficult book to write, but it's going to just be fabulous. We're expecting hashtag it at bestseller, this. Hashtag bestseller, hashtag bestseller. And I'm sure- Get it on out trips, there, Jim. <laughs> your trips to 41 countries, six continents will play a role in what you share. Lenore, thank you so much for, for bringing your, your wisdom, your knowledge, your experience, your candor, your humility, and your authenticity to the Dr. James Show. As someone said in the chat room, a breath of fresh air. Really, really, really. My <sighs> pleasure, Dr. James. Uh, it's just, I was so looking forward to this. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. You're welcome. And for those of you who tuned in, I told you, we keep getting better and better and better. Informational and transformational sessions. And as always, remember, you've just been Jim Packard. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.